Please be seated. Now, before I turn to the sermon, I forgot, apparently, one very important notice. The important notice is that there's a trade craft stall after the service. And the reason why it's a very important notice is that I want my meal tonight. Let the readers understand. Um, Well, we're well into the Easter season now. The Easter season is 50 days. It starts on Easter Day and it finishes, finishes technically on Pentecost. And as the word Pente suggests, it's 50 days after Easter. And what we tend to do, and I was talking to the people uh, in uh, the 10 o'clock communion service about this, is that we tend to focus in this 50-day period about the appearances of the risen Jesus and his teachings and commands. And the nearer we get to the latter end of the 50 days, the more and more we begin to think of Jesus ascending into heaven and the empowering gift of the Holy Spirit falling upon us. So we're right in the middle of that period today where we're looking at the risen Jesus and his teachings and we're just beginning to talk about when the Spirit comes. Okay, so locate yourself in the kind of church year. And today we're going to look at one of the most famous and probably most preached passages in the New Testament from the very end of Matthew's Gospel that Joe read for us. Anybody know what we call this particular passage at the end of Matthew? The Great Commission. Yeah. How many people recognize that phrase for this passage? An awful lot of us, yeah. It's a very well-known phrase to describe this passage, uh, but probably not until the early 17th century, which in the great scheme of things isn't very long ago. Uh, Only then was it known as the Great Commission. Uh, For a long, long time, Protestant reformers in the uh, 16th century, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon, etc., etc., they believed when they were doing biblical commentaries that this commission of Jesus given on the mountainside to the disciples was given only to the 12 disciples. So it was a commission, and it was given to them. But theoretically, at least, when the last of the 12 disciples died, the commission was finished. It was, if you like, a kind of kickstart to get the Christian church going after Jesus returned to heaven and the Spirit fell. uh, And the disciples then, as we record in the book of Acts and other places, went and spread the gospel. So it wasn't so much a great commission for the very many, it was a little commission for a few. Now, John Wesley, the founder, earthly founder of Methodism, died in March 1791. And only a year later, which I always find romantically intriguing, only a year later in 1792, a young cobbler from Northampton, who was a Baptist, went to a group of elder Baptists and spoke to them in a way that two years later was going to result in the Baptist Missionary Society being formed. 
because this young man had written a booklet. It had a snappy title. The title was called An Enquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. I told you it was snappy. And the very first chapter of that little pamphlet of 1792 argued, and it was so novel at the time, that the command of Jesus given on the mountain at the end of Matthew's gospel is actually a binding command and commission on every Christian everywhere ever born. And that was the reasoning why William Carey, because that's who the young cobbler from Northampton and the Baptist was, that was how he actually argued and began what we call the modern missionary movement. And one man at the meeting, uh, uh, apparently, a man called John Rylands, a leading Baptist of the time, is reported famously to have listened to William Carey argue the case for the need, the command, the commission of Jesus to go into all the nations. And he said these words, which I just love as a put down. Sit down, young man. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without aid of you or I. And you have there a typical 17th century Calvinistic Baptist approach that actually, if God wants to do something, God will go do it. And we can sit and watch. And Carey said, with great respect, sir, if God wants something doing on a hillside long ago, he commands you and me to go do it. And at least in terms of argument, and I would suggest in a change of theological position, even in the Baptist church over the next hundred years, Carey won the day, and the modern missionary movement of Protestantism was born. Now, John Wesley, dying in 1791, wasn't the first, but was among the first, to preach throughout his life on this passage in Matthew, as if it was a command of Jesus now to the people who heard it, not just to the disciples originally gathered on the hillside. And I romantically wonder whether or not the theologically Arminian Wesleyans influenced the theologically Calvinist Baptists so that a year after his death, William Carey could go make the case he did and win the philosophical and religious battle of the day. God saves whom he wills, said those Baptists in the 17th century. Yes, said Wesley, but God wills that all be saved. And it was in this context that the passage we read, read today from Matthew begins to be called the Great Commission. Not great because the great Lord Jesus said it, but great because great is the company of those who are involved in the commission. You see the difference? So I want us to look at this passage briefly this morning. It's a rich passage and we flip through it quite quickly. But the first word of that passage is the word go. And I want you to notice that Jesus tells his followers 
on that occasion on the mountainside to go, and I want you to notice how almost instinctively our life as Christians inevitably results in a saying to people, will you come? We often change what is essentially an outward-facing outreach movement into a kind of invitational, would you like to come and sing hymns with us? My uh, professor at university all those decades and decades ago was the famous Fred Bruce, F.F. Bruce, great brethren, Baptist te uh, Bible teacher. And he used to say of the book of Acts, and I've used this image many times, he said, the book of Acts is like God drops a pebble into the pool of human history and you watch the ripples from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's only possible because somebody somewhere begins to say that when Jesus Christ says go, he means me. We've often associated going with mission overseas, whereas increasingly in our plural, multi-faith, no-faith context of a modern, contemporary Britain, going must now also include taking seriously what it means to go out onto the streets, to go to those neighbors who are nearest to us, to go to those who are disadvantaged in our own midst, not play the card that sometimes Victorian Britain is accused of, and that is that we sat here saying, everything is hunky-dory here. We don't need anything, so we'll go to other poor people, only to realize late in the 20th century that there's a mission field right in front of us and all around us. Go. It's why I am down the my life a great supporter of fresh expressions of church because at its very least what church planting and pioneering ministry and fresh expressions of church do is they take seriously the notion to go and therefore take seriously what Jesus says to his disciples. How wonderful it will be when every and each Methodist church in Britain is committed to planting as many churches as it closes or closing them in order to start something that's new. A new church doing new things among new people. I wish we had a demonstrable faith and commitment of early Methodist missionaries. Not so far away from here in Richmond there was the main training college for the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society, started in the early part of the 19th century. It got sold in 1970-71, and since then is a rather exclusive American school. Uh, and when it was sold in 1971, quite a lot of the artifacts of Richmond College moved out of the buildings in order to be sold. One of them, in a circuitous route, is our statue of Wesley, there in the foyer, which stood for a hundred years before it ever came here at Richmond College, where all the missionaries to go out to the world trained. 
The other thing that was exported, and you'd have to go to the Methodist Church House in Marleybone Road to see them in the Richmond Room, appropriately, were some huge light oak boards. They must be eight, ten feet tall, seven, eight feet wide, and they've been gold etched. And on the top of each board, there must be seven, eight, nine boards, across the top of the board it says a name of, of, of the world. So it might say Ghana or Nigeria. New Zealand, South Africa, they're all over the place. And there are just some of the names of the graduates, the missionaries of the Wesleyan Methodist Missionary Society, and their names go down the side of the board, and then it says the year that they went, and then it says the year that they died. So you go down, let's say to to, uh, West Africa, where quite a lot of our congregation has its origin, known as the white man's grave. The average life expectancy of a first-generation Wesleyan Methodist missionary going to West Africa was 20 months. And so you see people, name after name on these huge boards, Fred Bloggs, Sierra Leone, departed 1832, died 1834, and it just goes on all the way down the boards. Interestingly, the lifespan getting slightly longer as you got into the 1850s and 1860s and 1870s. I'm told that the missionaries at that college began to make their own wooden chests in which to put all their belongings and they put them in the hold of the ship and they made the six weeks journey to Africa where they were going. And after a while, they began to make the chests that they made, the shape, not the the shape of a coffin, but a square box which was big enough and shaped big enough for them to lie in. Because they knew that basically as they were going, they wouldn't be coming back. And I'm also told that on Tuesday evening, every week, in that ministry mission training college, they had a communion service. And the principal of the college, as they got to communion, would read the names of Wesleyan Methodist missionaries who they had heard since the previous week somewhere in the world had died. And sometimes it took months for that information to get back to Richmond. And then when the principal bid everybody come to communion, He would say, therefore, we need someone to go. And whether it's true or not, I'd like to think it's true, it was many decades before there wasn't, before somebody didn't say, I will go. In other words, week after week, month after month after month, people said, I will go, and they remained after receiving bread and wine and the staff of the college laid hands on their head and they began from that day onwards to prepare to go. Go and make disciples, said Jesus. I remember and I remind you that Jesus did not say, 
you go build my church and I will make disciples. Jesus said, you go make disciples and I will build my church. And we need to remember that in the life of any church. We need to remember too that Jesus said, go make disciples, not go make converts or consumers. Consumers will turn up and while it's giving them something, they will belong to church and the minute that they don't like what is on offer, as consumers, they will leave or they'll go somewhere else. Converts may receive and respond once to a a heart call of the gospel, they might be pricked in their conscience, and then three weeks later, three months later, they're right back where they were. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now it's here that the original New Testament Greek translated into English does us no favors whatsoever. Our passage from the New International Version said, go make disciples of all nations. And the Greek, forgive me just for a moment, those of you who go, oh no, he's going to quote Greek again. The Greek phrase for that all nations is the phrase pantata ethne, which Even you know, if you're listening, ethne, E-T-H-N-E, reminds you not so much of a nation, but of a ethnicity. And it's really because so many Bible translations followed the kind of notion of a, a state, a nation state in Europe, so closely associated with the Protestant Reformation, that all the English translations said, oh, we know what it means. It means a big crowd of people. It means a a nation. Therefore, what we've got to do is we've got to go to Germany or to Japan. We've got to go to Afghanistan or we've got to go to Wales. As if the nation state is the defined thing, whereas in fact, Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of Pantata Ethne. All peoples, all races, all ages, everywhere, nobody excluded. Every generation of Christians has trouble with that passage. And I'll tell you why. Because it gives us no get out whatsoever in our endless search to find people to exclude from the call of the gospel. Baptizing and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We could say all sorts, but I want to focus just very briefly on the word teaching or the notion of teaching, teaching them to. Because I think again that the common interpretation of the word and the activity is quite different from what we would now think it was. Methodism is about 280 years old And it's a branch of Protestant Christianity that was born in the cultural era known as the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, where you learned something was to be taught it in a particular sort of way. And largely taught it cerebrally with your 
head, with your mind. So my parents left school at 14 and uh, they refer to their schooling as chalk and talk. Sit down, I'm writing on the blackboard, copy what's on the blackboard, learn it. It's enlightenment teaching. When I first became a Christian, I was given a tract. I can still remember it, it's still in print today. Journey into Life by Norman Warren. And in spite of its little line drawings and its logically laid out things, you couldn't escape the fact that when you read it, you knew what you were, you're a sinner. And you knew what you did, you sin. And you knew what you had to do, you had to trust in Christ who was the Savior. And then you gave yourself to Jesus Christ and you told somebody at the end of the meeting, I have chosen to follow Jesus. And that person said to you, as they said to me so many decades ago now, young man, you've made a very important decision. Now you are a Christian. It's enlightenment teaching. There's nothing wrong with it. Just pause there. I'm not going to lambast that. I'm just explaining how we understand teaching. Because the person who preached that evening and the person who took me through journey into life and the person who said to me, now do you want to follow Jesus, no doubt went home that night and with some justification said, tonight I have made a disciple and I have taught them all that you told me to do. And it results in the fact that the enlightenment we often think is therefore a bit tick boxy in terms of faith. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Yep. Etc. etc. Well, you're a disciple, you're a Christian. But what you've done is you've reduced the whole notion of being a disciple of Jesus to a series of mental, cerebral, ascension, yeses, to various religious propositions. I don't think that's what Matthew meant when he recorded Jesus saying, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is a rabbi teacher. How many times in the Gospels do they turn around and say rabbi or teacher? And the relationship between Jesus and his disciples was very much of a rabbi and a teacher. And a rabbi didn't teach by giving people mental propositions and homework and telling them to come back and say, have you read it? Have you remembered it? Have you copied it out? Do you believe it? The Gospels reveal to us how Jesus Christ taught. He took people with him and they watched him and they witnessed him do this. Then he turned around to them at various times, particularly in Luke's Gospel, and said, now you have a go. Lord, we went and we did what you said and demons were cast out in your name and we come back rejoicing. And in Luke 12, Jesus effectively says, you are being taught. 
well done, congratulations, you were, you were learning. Because the teaching that was being talked about wasn't head knowledge. It was, are you going to be a person like this? Are you going to be a person who more and more and more mirrors the life, the values, the words of the teacher, the rabbi? Is it going to be possible that for the rest of your life, wherever you go, you're going to stand among a group of people and you can't be with them very long at all before they say, you're, you're a follower of that rabbi Jesus, aren't you? How do you know? Well, because you just remind me so much of him. That's what's meant when Matthew says, teaching them. It's much more holistic. So teaching is supremely the command to go and be like Jesus so that people meet Jesus when they meet his disciples. And I am with you always, must finish. I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to indulge in a little bit of heresy as I close. No surprise there then, you're saying. I can see you, Don Nunn, nodding up and down. He's doing it again. A little heresy, but before that, just remember what was the name given to the Christ child in Matthew's gospel. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the very last thing that Jesus says before he disappears to heaven to the disciples is, I am with you. Now the heresy. I've often wondered whether or not that's a conditional promise. What I mean is that the Greek allows us to just sort of cumulatively run through the text and then almost in a disconnected way at the end say, and remember, I'm with you always. And that's the way that we usually, for obvious reasons, interpret it. So in other words, it would go something like, go, make disciples, all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Whereas in fact, it's just as likely that in the original Greek, it goes something like this. If you go... If you make disciples, if of all nations, pantata ethne, if you teach people everything I have commanded you, if you baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then I will be with you always to the ends of the age. Now, I won't force that because I've got a year to go yet. But if that was true, if that was the right way of interpreting that passage, 
then suddenly there's an urgency about all that that we very often don't find much at all in our lives. So to end, we go back to the Methodist missionaries. Remember the boards I talked about a few minutes ago at Richmond College, now in Methodist Church House where I worked for nine years. And when I worked in the building and there was eminent Methodists from around the world coming, I'd show them the Richmond room. And I'd tell them some of the stories that I've told you this morning. And I'd show them to the board so that when the prelate of the Methodist Church Nigeria came to visit, uh, for most of the time I was there with Samuel Uche, and I'd visit the, uh, the prelate, I'd show him round, and he'd stand in front of the West Africa board, and he'd bow his head and be deeply reverential. It was deeply moving to be with some of these African leaders. I was showing one person round. To be honest, I thought they were a bit thick because they looked at these boards which had the name and the date they went somewhere and the date they died and they looked at me, they said, so when did they die? And every bone in my body felt like saying, are you stupid? Look, it says that's that list there. Went 1832, died 1834. He died in 1834. Or did they? Or did they die when they stay behind at communion? Did they die the moment they said, I'll go? Did they die the first time they filled in the form in Journey into Life? You see, the Great Commission is led by the living one who died and involves taking up all disciples of every time and every place and saying you've got to die and then I'll show you what it is to go and Christ requires in each generation in each place in this church in this time today you, me, us to choose to die to self and live for Christ and join the Great Commission. So rather than end the service with an amen, though we will do in a minute, I'm going to lead a prayer as we finish. And if you want to identify with that prayer, I want you to stand at any point as I lead it. It's quite a short prayer. And by standing, effectively say, this is my prayer. And the prayer will be about whether or not we are dying to go. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we hear your great commission. Forgive us that we romanticize it. And help us this morning through your Holy Spirit to hear clearly your word again, to go. 
your command of us to make disciples. Your commission that we are to go to all nations, whether the other side of the world or the other side of the street. That we are to teach people with our lives and our lifestyles, our words and our deeds, what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And forgive us that we so often have taken that promise that you are with us always, but dismissed the very things that cause you to make that promise. And help us today to heed your words, to become great commission people, to be more like Jesus our Lord, and to know what it is to die in order that we might truly live. Amen. So we sing. Anthony said to me earlier on, he said, why are you singing this hymn at the end? Wouldn't it be better at the beginning? Uh, and I said to him, whoever put the service together, that's the order that they did it, and they did it. But I think I chose this hymn, didn't I? And the reason I chose this hymn is that this is the hymn that my dad sang when he was dying. So it's a bit romantic. But nevertheless, the message is there that if a 94-year-old bloke in a hospital ward can start singing, Here I Am, Lord, then we can all join in. So we stand and sing it. <laughs> 